episode, we speak with Professor Richard Drayton, who's Professor of Commonwealth History at King's College London. We speak with Dr. Patrick Scanlan, who teaches Imperial and Colonial History at the University of Toronto. And we speak with Dr. Damlola Adebayo, who teaches African History at St. John's College, Cambridge. In this episode, we look at the rise and fall of the transatlantic slave trade. There were far more Africans who crossed the Atlantic than Europeans. Of course, they crossed the Atlantic in a state of captivity as involuntary migrants. But you simply cannot understand how any of the European empires, Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese, French or British, emerged without this basis, uh, which was this, 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 this pool of labor uh, which was recruited uh, under conditions of slavery uh, on the coast of West Africa and some on the coast of East Africa and brought to the Americas. From as early as 1511, whether it is silver production in Mexico and Peru, uh, whether it is sugar production uh, in the Caribbean and in the northeast of Brazil, tobacco in North America, uh, rice in Georgia, it depended on African labor and African expertise. Uh, What we now know, for example, is that uh, particular African ethnicities were sought out by European slave traders because of the skills which they could bring. So, for example, there's work done uh, in, uh, in the case of the United States, which, has to, which suggests that uh, the emergence of rice production in Georgia and in the Carolinas uh, uh, depended in, in part on particular ethnicities being recruited uh, and, brought, and brought to uh, as, as, ca- as captive labor. So that's that's one dimension of it. But you could also argue that um, what emerges with this uh, offshore uh, colonial economy of Europe uh, is an extraordinary set of business opportunities. So that if you're looking at the development of uh, the economies of uh, any of the European powers, but in particular, the ones which had a significant Atlantic trade, uh, you find, in fact, that consumers in Africa... Uh, and uh, those who were effectively consumers, even though they were enslaved people uh, in South America, the Caribbean, and North America, were an important source of demand for a variety of new industries, uh, from uh, cotton uh, to wool uh, to iron. Um, In the middle of the 18th century, uh, a political economist called Malachi Postlethwaite said that British, the British trade is a magnificent superstructure of American commerce on an African foundation. Essentially, <laughs> uh, that, that African foundation uh, was the absolute basis of the growth of these economies. But then let's step beyond that and think about um, the, the ways in which that particular uh, system of plantation slavery also creates uh, uh, psychologies and what we could think of as cultural technologies, which proved to be important for European empire. And I'd want to focus in in particular about the way in which it is in the plantation system that we have constructed uh, modern ideas of race. So that uh, whiteness uh, is, not born as an, is not born as an idea uh, within Europe. Uh, it's really in, you know, it's been suggested that in Brazil in the 1620s, you first begin people, first begin to find people talking about we Europeans. 
uh, and talking about essentially a set of people who come from a variety of nations, but who, who are different from, in some categorical way, uh, either the Amerindian peoples of the Americas uh, or indeed uh, the enslaved African people. So the importance of this, this uh, uh, cultural technology, which is race, uh, is going to be uh, uh, you know, difficult to, to overestimate in terms of uh, the construction of European empires in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. Because in some ways, one of the things which race does is it produces a kind of European coalition. So, you know, we always think about Europeans fighting wars against each other, and certainly they did. But in fact, if one thinks about Europe, even in the midst of these wars, there was an enormous amount of mobilization of the collective resources of the entire continent towards the domination of the world. Uh, and all of the imperial wars that we can think of, uh, that's to say the wars fought in, in colonial spaces against uh, non-European peoples, usually involved coalitions of many European nations. Uh, to uh, uh, and, well, and of course, with some some local allies as well. Mm -hmm. So that's the last theme I touch on here. Is that the other important aspect of uh, the slave business for the origins of the European empires is that it is around this slave business that important collaborative relationships are established between European nations uh, and various polities on the coast uh, of Africa which will prove of enormous importance when, in the 19th century, uh, Europeans begin to attempt to project uh, colonial empires into the space of Africa. Indeed. Um, I agree with you completely that this cultural technology of racism was created on the plantations. It was born out of the slave trade. And, in fact, the colonial project is what brought Europe together in a very strong and united front. Yes. As opposed to the way they had lived for centuries. Yes. Um, and we but, can see this legacies today. I mean, if you look at the way in which something like the, uh, the OECD operates, the way mm -hmm. in which uh, the, the European Union in alliance with Britain and the United States it's the World Bank. has very, has very uh, the World Bank, the IMF, which is actually controlled by the West, uh, have this kind of coherent set of policies which they, they work together uh, to impose on whatever countries are not strong enough to resist. So now we speak with Dr. Patrick Scanlon. The transatlantic slave trade began with the demand for labor in the Americas uh, after the conquest of, of, of uh, parts of, of what's now South America by uh, the Spanish and Portuguese empires. So, you know, can one of the biggest demands of any empire uh, or any imperial project is, is labor. Um, and so, you know, we, we tend to associate plantation slavery with the transatlantic slave trade, but the transatlantic slave trade uh, existed before sugar, cotton, coffee, and tobacco plantations were founded in the Americas. Um, so the first imperial and colonial projects of, of the Spanish and Portuguese empires in the Americas were uh, silver and gold mines, especially in the northern parts of, of South America. Uh, and those, um, you know, mining is an extremely labor-intensive project. And, you know, in the, in the 15th century, those, and the early 16th century, those gold and silver mines uh, were initially worked by enslaved um, people indigenous to the Americas. Uh, but as European diseases uh, wiped out 
swaths of the indigenous population of, of, of what's now, you know, South America, um, mm -hmm. the, the demand for labor uh, from other parts of the world increased. Uh, and so, you know, enslaved African workers started uh, being transported across the Atlantic uh, by the Iberian empires, you know, in the, in the, in the 1500s. Um, and so, you know, the transatlantic slave trade, but I, so the, yeah, that's right. Um, I think the next question is how important exactly was the trade to the emergence of empire? Um, right. Not so just, not just um, empire on the side of the, the European powers, but also empire within Africa as well, because many, African states engaged right. in enlarging their borders to get more prisoners of war and sell yeah. for the slave trade. So, I, I mean, I'm going to fast forward a little bit and, and sort of uh, answer in the context of, of Britain's relationship with West Africa, which is what I, oh. I know best. Um, so for the British empire in the Americas, transatlantic slavery was one of the most important foundation stones of the building of a British colonial empire uh, in, in the Caribbean and then in the southern parts of, of uh, North America. So, you know, Britain's engagement with the slave trade began as piracy. So the, the British slave trade, uh, unlike the Spanish or the Portuguese slave trade, began not with, at the time, English ships, because this was before, you know, the creation of, of Great Britain uh, mm -hmm. with the Act of Union in 1707. So this was primarily English uh, English pirates and privateers who would capture uh, ships carrying enslaved people belonging to other imperial powers, um, seize them, and then bring them to what was at the time primarily a, a, a Spanish and Portuguese empire uh, in the Caribbean and in South America uh, to sell the enslaved captives. Um, likewise, Britain wasn't the first um, wasn't the first European power to stake a claim to the Caribbean or to the Americas. Uh, but it eventually, by the end of the 18th century, became you know, one of the most powerful European empires with an imperial foothold in the Americas. Uh, but Britain's first colonies worked by enslaved labor were places like Barbados uh, and, and Jamaica, uh, places that were, in, Bar in the case of Barbados, a place that had been inhabited by indigenous uh, Taino people uh, you know, in the 16th century, people who fled effectively in the face of, of Spanish and Portuguese slave raiding. So when the British arrived in Barbados in the 1620s, there was no one there. Um, and very quickly, enslaved African laborers became the primary workforce in Barbados. And then uh, in the 1650s and 1660s, Britain conquered uh, under conquered Jamaica, taking it from the Spanish. And that became, in a sense, Britain's uh, biggest foothold in the Caribbean. Uh, and, and over time, the the commercial power of especially the sugar market, uh, because I think it's it's difficult to overstate how valuable sugar was as a product in global trade in the 18th century. So the size and scope of the sugar market made the Caribbean colonies extremely valuable to Britain uh, and made the Caribbean colonies belonging to other European empires, places like Saint-Domingue and Martinique, which Saint-Domingue, which became the Republic of Haiti in 1804, uh, which belonged to the French Empire, you know, until the Haitian Revolution. Um, these were very, very important colonies. And they were colonies also that anchored not only the kind of uh, empire based on enslaved labor of the Caribbean and the southern part of North America, but also the entire Atlantic Basin. 
So if you think about a colony like Newfoundland, which is about as remote from Jamaica as you can get on the Atlantic mm-hmm. Sea, um, a place that was, you know, very, very lightly settled by Europeans, effectively kind of a seasonal uh, colony where, you know, every cod fishing season, thousands of English sailors would arrive to catch cod and then leave uh, when the winter set in. But cod was valuable in part because it was very easy to salt uh, and because cod, salted cod was a very uh, cheap and you know, calorie efficient protein for enslaved laborers. So salt fish, which is you know, still a kind of iconic ingredient in a lot of Caribbean cuisine, is, was originally salt cod. Um, and so even Newfoundland, this, this colony incredibly remote from the colonies of the Caribbean, was integrated into the Atlantic system. So Britain's colonial empire, especially in the first part of the 18th century, was built on the proceeds of uh, enslaved labor in the Caribbean and on the proceeds of the plantations. So I, I think we tend to think about the, the slave trade as being I think because in British history, the abolition of the slave trade is remarked upon a lot more than the abolition of slavery, uh, even mm-hmm. though, you know, arguably the transatlantic slave, well, not actually, I think it's, it's inarguable, actually, that the transatlantic slave trade was a much smaller uh, proportion of the overall British imperial commercial empire than the plantations were. Um, but for a number of reasons, the 1807 abolition of the British slave trade was celebrated far more than the 1833 abolition of colonial slavery. Exactly. Uh, uh, and so, you know, there, there's, there's this sense that, that the, these, these colonies, and I think it's telling actually, and I think it speaks to the importance of the, of plantation slavery to uh, the British empire in particular, that the abolition of the slave trade, which of course didn't end the production of sugar by enslaved labor, was much easier to celebrate than the end of colonial slavery, which, while it didn't immediately end the production of sugar in the British Empire or the end the kind of imperial sugar industry, it set the table for it. And by the 1850s, places like Jamaica or Barbados or Guyana were far less important in terms of the global marketplace as sugar mm-hmm. producers. Uh, in terms of West African empires, uh, I mean, the story is, 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 is very complicated uh, because I think particularly historians who are interested in, you, you know, there, there, there is a, an unfortunate tendency when historians talk about Atlantic history to think only about the American side of the Atlantic coast. Exactly. And to, yeah, and, and to treat African politics and political economy as fixed and static and unchanging. Um, but of course, you know, the 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 geography of the transatlantic slave trade in West Africa shifted over time. Um, you know, in the 15th and 16th century places in what, what, what Walter Rodney called the upper Guinea coast, uh, Sierra Leone, uh, present day Sierra Leone, present day Liberia, present day Senegal, uh, and the Gambia was much more important as a, as a kind of slave trading region. Um, but as the 18th century wore on, the focus of the slave trade moved further south uh, to the Bights of Benin and Biafra, and then later to Angola. So, you know, the idea that there's a single history of the transatlantic slave trade in West Africa isn't true. The, the geography of, of the trade shifts over time. But as you, you know, as, as your question suggested, uh, the tendency, the, the, the overall effect of the transatlantic slave trade on West African political economy was to favor powerful centralized states with the power to make war on smaller, more, more politically fractured states, because, uh, you know, 
empires like Ashanti uh, or Dahomey could could you know command far more uh, you know tax collection, revenue collection, uh, military power, and when dealing with with European empires that were themselves you know in uh, enlarging and enriching thanks to the transatlantic slave trade you know, bigger African empires and African states tended to do better. But I think over time, the overall impact of the transatlantic slave trade was to erode um, that power of sovereignty in, in, in West Africa. So even, exactly. you know, even a powerful empire like Ashanti eventually was, you know, when it, when it became by the 1870s, when, you know, Britain's, the, the the kind of military and, and economic power that Britain had managed to build in part thanks to the proceeds of slavery was brought to bear on, you know, one of the most powerful West African empires. Um, you know, the, it, eventually, right, Ashanti f- was subordinated to, to British imperial power and the, the Gold Coast colony uh, emerged and replaced it. Um, so I think overall, the transatlantic slave trade began as a kind of and the historian Toby Green makes this makes this argument um, in a recent book, A Fistful of Shells, um, that you know the the economic and diplomatic relationships between West Africa and Europe began fairly equal uh, in the early modern era, but then as the transatlantic slave trade accelerated, um, the you know the, the the kinds of economic and social and political forces that were unleashed by the trade slowly began to erode. Uh, the sovereignty of even the most powerful West African states. Exactly. Um, that's a very interesting point. And, and it's also interesting that you mentioned Jamaica because we get a lot of the source of the the daily lives of, of people who were enslaved in the, in the Caribbean from Thomas Tissot's diaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the Tainos actually gave us the word hurricane, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but then let's let's move on to the, the the role of Africans within the trade. And um, there's always this um, very, I would say it's a revisionist sort of idea, but the idea that it was things were done to them. But the, it's actually quite the opposite, really. Like it was it was it was a trade. Um, mm-hmm. How important were the middlemen and the kings? Like the king of Dahomey was very strongly for the trade, even when it was banned in 1807. Um, how important yeah. were they in the entire relationship? Well, I mean, it's, it's, as you say, it's, it's very complicated um, and it's very politically charged, right? Because there, I think in part, especially in the Britain and the British world, uh, there's a sense, even to this day in Britain, of British anti-slavery as being the kind of one of the colossal achievements of the British Empire and evidence of its virtue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is this kind of recourse to the argument that, the transatlantic slave trade, you know, when you're trying to figure out where the transatlantic slave trade begins, uh, I think there is a kind of bad faith move made by a lot of, of, of British commentators, at least, that, well, you know, African states began the transatlantic slave trade by engaging in the sale of enslaved captives to European empires, which is true, right? I mean, but, but it's not true in quite the way that people who make that argument want it to be true, exactly. right? So, so there's... You know, there, there is, um, you know, in the, in the region that I know best, the region around Sierra Leone, I, I mean, there is an entire, you know, they're not, it's, it's, it's important to recognize that not every, um, like, 
African and uh, people of, of, of African merchants and merchants of mixed European and African heritage were the fact were the brokers who uh, you know manage transactions between European merchants and pe- people purchasing enslaved people from mm. from either European run slave forts or from uh, merchant depots run by Af- African merchants. Um, but I think it's it's important to recognize that you know that. Just as, you know, I, th- I think, how, how can I put this? I think it's important to recognize that the same phenomenon connecting the rise of transatlantic slavery and plantation slavery to the rise of global industrial capitalism is happening on both sides of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just as the rise of plantations tends to enrich a relatively small cast of British, French, Spanish, and Portuguese planters in the Caribbean, uh, people for whom, you know, at, to the to the detriment, not only of enslaved people, but also of, you know, lower paid white workers on the other side of the Atlantic, the same phenomenon is also happening in West Africa, where a small cast of people of royal blood, people with, like, with longstanding connections to merchant networks, uh, people who have the, you know, the good fortune to be the go-betweens between, say, the trans-Saharan caravan trade and the transatlantic slave trade become enormously wealthy, but that doesn't necessarily redound to the average, you know, the average peasant living in a village, let's say in, in what became the British colony of Sierra Leone, mm-hmm. you know, for them, the experience of the rise of the transatlantic slave trade would be, a, would, would, would largely be a, an experience of rising prices, greater insecurity. Um, so it's, it's, it, it's a trade I think that, that exacerbates inequality both globally between European and African states, but also internally within Europe and also within Africa. Um, so, you know, I think that, that, that it's important to recognize that that phenomenon is a global one. It's not something that, that just happened, you know, in Europe or just happened in the Americas. It happened everywhere. Exactly. exactly. And around the period, even the concept of what it meant to be African was nebulous. You were, Absolutely. you know, part of your village, your tribe, your state. Everyone else was an other. Even within Europe, there wasn't a sort of European unity at that point in time. You know, there wasn't the, the Unification Act of, of Great Britain of 1707. There was no Germany until 1871. There was no United Italy, for example. So it was a very insecure environment, both in Africa and in Europe. And you had basically companies and people and a a few kings and states who basically pounced on this sort of situation and made the best out of it for themselves. But that led to a lot of sad occurrences for a lot of people. Look, there, there are, there are. I mean, we tend to think about the, the, you know, in European history, there tends to be this concept of the age of revolutions, right at the end of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a, a lot of historians in recent years have made the point that that era of, of global rupture isn't just a European or a North American phenomenon, but mm-hmm. you know, this is an era of, of widespread um, religious war in in the north, in sort of the. Walter Rodney's Upper Guinea Coast region. Uh-huh. Um, it's an era when states, you know, across the world are reconfiguring themselves. And In Arabia as well. Yeah, and, and the overall tendency is towards a more uh, focused sense of national identity, right? Uh, uh, a more centralized state and a more kind of authoritarian flavor. That's a, something, something pretty ironic 
about the age of revolutions. And it's actually something that, that, that the historian David Bell mentions in a focuses on in a, in a recent book, um, men on horseback, this, this tension between the idea of, of the age of revolutions as this age of, of democratization, uh, in counterpoint with the reality that, that for most people living in many regions of the world, the age of revolutions was an era of stronger state power, which wasn't experienced as democratic power, but as, as a kind of creeping authoritarianism. Exactly, exactly. But then, I mean, let's um, segue into the end of the trade. Um, the trade lasted almost 300 to 400 years. Um, the historian Philip Curtin estimates that around 8 million people were, were traded into slavery. But then there are other numbers, some say 10, some say 12 million. Yeah. Um, and the bulk of these people landed in the Americas, across the Americas, you know, from present-day Colombia to present-day Virginia and the Carolinas, which incidentally, for the first 150 years of America's existence, the, the U.S. as it is today, it was a British colony. It was British. Um, so you had a lot of other companies as well who were operating um, with impunity, really, like the Duke of York's Royal African Company, of which New York is named after him. Um, but then the end of the trade is always seen as something that, like you rightly said, Europeans came and then they said, oh, this trade is bad, we should stop it. But there were a lot of abolitionists on the continent of Africa as well, primarily um, Muslim scholars who, based on religion, believe that this is wrong. And also people, because people that were sidelined economically as well, uh, other commodities lost that sort of value. They also were against the trade. So why exactly did the trade end around the period that it ended, 1807? Um, Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's important. So there's a couple of points there um, to, to, to focus on. Um, so I think it's important to remember that the slave... Be- All right, let me, let me reframe this. Um, so I think in, in the kind of British national mythology, uh, and, and to a lesser extent, actually, in the American national mythology, uh, because, of course, America abolished its slave trade in 1808 as well, although not thanks to any kind of sort of parliamentary campaign, but because the end of the slave trade was written into the founding documents of the United States for complicated reasons. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's this tendency to celebrate 1807, 1808 as the end of the, of the transatlantic slave trade. But, you know, millions of people made what Europeans called the middle passage after 1808, uh, primarily to Brazil and especially to Brazil and Cuba. Uh, which in the wake of the, you know, in the wake of the Haitian Revolution, Cuba, which is only, you know, in its closest point, maybe 80 or 90 miles from um, from what became the Republic of Haiti, you know, Cuba became the, one of the new hotspots of sugar production by enslaved labor in the, in the Caribbean. And so there was still demand for enslaved laborers um, and there was still supply, right? Because although Britain abolished its own slave trade and tried... Um, you know, to a greater or lesser extent to stop other European countries from trading in enslaved people, the slave trade continued. Um, So why Britain itself abolished the slave trade in 1807 is a really, really complicated question that has both a very simple and a very complex answer. And the simple answer, which I think isn't very satisfying to people who would like 1807 to be this kind of shining beacon of British humanitarianism uh, is that 1807 represented a particular moment in British political history where 
it was possible to abolish the slave trade and treat it as a patriotic victory rather than as a loss to British commerce. So in 1807, this is in the midst of the, uh, in the, in the of the wars with, with Napoleonic France, mm-hmm. uh, when, you know, in the early 19th century between, you, you know, at the, at the turn of the 19th century, there were heavy blockades of British shipping, uh, both by American neutral ships and by uh, the French Navy that were stopping a lot of slave ships owned by British captains from actually making the passage across the Atlantic at all. So, you know, some historians estimate that, you know, as much as two thirds of, of, of the British slave trade had effectively been grounded by blockades at the turn of the 19th century. And so all of a sudden it was possible, politically possible in Britain to say, well, let's, because one, one of the arguments that slave traders had made to defend the trade throughout the 18th century was to say, no, no, we cannot abolish the slave trade because it's one of the cornerstones of British, uh, of the British merchant empire. If we abolish the slave trade, you know, everything else will collapse. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that all of these ships that were that that would have carried enslaved captives across the Atlantic weren't just sitting kind of rotting in Bristol or Liverpool, but were in fact carrying other stuff, right? They were carrying goods, trade goods, or they were trading in the North Sea. Um, and so it turned out, in fact, that those arguments about the centrality of the British slave trade to British commerce weren't true. Um, and so, you know, that made it easier uh, in, in 1805, 1806, the abolitionist James Stephen made a very, one of the kind of under, underreported, but brilliant kind of tactical moments of British abolitionism, uh, by, um, by, by, uh, introducing a law called the Foreign Slave Trade Act, uh, which made it illegal for British ships to carry enslaved people to other colonies. And it was really easy to sell that too, as well. Uh, as a patriotic gesture, because who would oppose the idea while Britain was at war of not supplying labor to Britain's enemies? But that was another big chunk of the of the trans of the British transatlantic slave trade, because Britain didn't just supply its own colonies with enslaved people as laborers; it supplied France's colonies, Portugal's colonies, Spain's colonies. Um, you know, it was it was a, 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 a an ecumenical dealer in, in enslaved people. Uh, and so, you know, with those two, with the, the, the combination of a blockade and the abolition of the trade to, non, to, 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 to Britain's enemies, effectively, there wasn't much of a transatlantic slave trade to speak of in 1806-1807. And so, you know, after William, William Pitt died in 1806, and he was sort of an, both, you know, very good at rhetorically supporting the abolition of the slave trade, but also very good at tactically delaying it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after Pitt died uh, and, and Grenville formed a ministry, all of a sudden, like at that particular moment, all of the political ducks were in a row for William Wilberforce and the other leaders of parliamentary abolitionism in the British Empire to introduce a bill that they had been trying to get passed for nearly 20 years and then all of a sudden abolish the slave trade. So that's, that's, I mean, it took me a long time to give the answer, but that's the kind of simple, unsatisfying answers to why the British slave trade ended when it did in 1807. Um, the origins of British anti-slavery itself are really complicated um, and involve, you know, the, the, uh, the rise of evangelicalism, 
which uh, militated against slavery on the grounds that enslaved people couldn't, because they were enslaved, they didn't have the, the, the freedom of, of uh, conscience that was necessary to allow them to choose to convert to Christianity or not. Um, it was involved in the rise of sensibility as a cultural force in British, in British cultural life. The idea that, that inflicting pain was something that was um, unseemly, uh, and that uh, a kind of evolved empire ought not to engage in the kind of unnecessary, uh, in, in, in inflicting unnecessary pain on people. There were arguments about imperial political economy and the value of slavery. So that the, the kind of origins of what I, in my book, Freedom's Debtors, I call the white conscience, sort of the rise of, of anti-slavery in Britain among primarily white, although not only white Britons, uh, is something different from the political movement to actually end the slave trade. Uh, and then I think, you know, the global slave trade declined in part because over time in the, in the 19th century, uh, enslaved laborers were less necessary for the production of the kinds of crops that enslaved laborers had once produced. So by the 18, you know, the, because of know, technology. Exactly. Uh, so Brazil is the la one of the last American states to abolish slavery. It only abolishes slavery in the 1880s. Uh, but by the 1880s, you know, enslaved people in Brazil are producing sugar, but so are factories in northern France and Belgium that produce sugar from sugar beets. Um, you know, enslaved people are producing cotton in the United States until the American Civil War. But immediately after the American Civil War, Britain is able to shift production of cotton from you know, its primary supplier, which had been the slave states of, of what became the Confederacy, to places like Egypt, like Berar in India, you know, the, the, like the, the global south, it turned out, could still be exploited without the need for enslaved labor. So I think like the part of the, the it's, it's satisfying, I think, especially in Britain, to treat British anti-slavery as evidence of, of, and of, of, as sort of the first, um, the first domino in a chain reaction that ended with the kind of liberation of the world. Uh -huh. um, but I, I don't think a, that that happened and B, I think that that overprivileges a political issue in Britain proper in comparison with a transformation in the global political economy uh, and, and changes in technology Uh, changes in the production of crops that had once been plantation crops. So I think, you know, I, I think that especially with something as emotionally fraught as, as the history of slavery, uh, I think it's, it's satisfying to historians and to the public to find an answer where you have a hero and a villain. But I, I don't think one of the things I try to emphasize in my own work is that, you know, that view, it distorts what actually happened. And, and exactly, you know, yeah. Exactly, I agree. And I mean, even when it was banned in 1807 and the West African Frontier Force was sort of created to police the waterways, they still collected bribes and allowed slave ships to pass all the time. And almost 80% of all the ships still passed without any issues because they just paid off the British, the British ships and British captains. Um, but then, go on. Yeah, no, I, I just wanted to add one more thing. I mean, there is this, this tendency in, in uh, I mean, I think this is less... I think because one of the virtues of 
anti-slavery in that first era before the abolition of slavery and the before, you know, the, the era before the abolition of the slave trade and the abolition of colonial slavery. Anti-slavery has these clear, bright lines uh, where the goals are clear for at least for British activists, right? It's end the slave trade, then end colonial slavery. But after the abolition of colonial slavery, things get complicated. The anti-slavery movement doesn't end in Britain, uh, but it, it, is definite, it definitely loses focus. So if you look at the proceeds, so there's the, the proceedings of uh, in 1840, the Anti-Slavery Society had a global anti-slavery conference uh, in, in London. Um, and if you look at the, you know, the proceedings are published, they're publicly available, they're in the public domain. And there's probably six or 700 pages of debates with, uh, among delegates from Britain, from the United States, from Britain's colonies in British North America, um, trying to figure out exactly what anti-slavery is supposed to do after slavery has been abolished. <laughs> and for the American delegates, it's pretty clear, which is abolish slavery in the United States. But for the British delegates, anti-slavery segues, I think, into a kind of all-purpose sense that having abolished slavery, Britain now has the obligation uh, not just the ob- not just the right, but also the obligation to impose a civilizing mission on all of the places that had once been touched by British imperial power when the British when British imperial power was oriented around slavery, uh, and that is like that does a lot of damage uh, in a lot of places. Exactly, uh-huh. and that brings us to our next point, actually, which is um, the British mi- mission to sort of create enclaves within the African continent to have quote-unquote, civilized Africans go and create a new society, like Sierra Leone. Um, mm-hmm. And you did have a few people who were on the way to the Americas, and they were stopped, and then they were taken to Sierra Leone. Like, how important was the emergence of Sierra Leone on the West African continent? Right. Uh, I mean, it was both... So I think from the perspective, it's certainly very, very important in... The so I, I think let me let me start over. So I, I think it's important to, to to think about what we mean by the importance of Sierra Leone, um, because I think there were moments when, in terms of Sierra Leone as a British imperial project, when it was very important, and moments when it was much less important. Mm-hmm. Likewise, in terms of West African political economy, there were moments when. Sierra Leone and especially the Saros, right? So the, the, the mostly Yoruba liberated Africans from Sierra Leone who became like a, a very powerful missionary merchant class uh, throughout West Africa, you know, they're, they're, when, when their importance as merchants and as missionaries was at its, at its kind of high, um, high ebb, like then Sierra Leone was quite important. But I think it's important to remember that the British colony of Sierra Leone was really small until the 1890s. Um, so what, when Britain spoke about Sierra Leone until Britain claimed the Sierra Leone protectorate, which, you know, includes most of present day Sierra Leone, uh, when Britain said Sierra Leone, they meant just the province of the country that's now called the Western area. So Freetown and, and its immediate uh, suburbs. Um, so it's, it's a small colony. Rhetorically, it was extremely important for British abolitionists in the era of the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, so Sierra Leone was founded, uh, or the European colony in Sierra Leone rather, was first founded in 1787 uh, as the province of freedom, which was a project to uh, effectively make the, so after the American Revolutionary War, um, primarily black American soldiers and sailors who had fought for Britain ended up kind of impoverished on the streets of London. 
and British abol- British abolitionists like Granville Sharp imagined that Black Americans could become a kind of combination merchant class slash civilizing class if they were sent to West Africa to act as, as kind of a foothold for the British Empire there. And that colony fell apart and was refounded by the Sierra Leone Company um, in 1792. And that's when Freetown was founded, which is still, still the capital of Sierra Leone. And so in that era from 1792 to about 1815, Sierra Leone was very important rhetorically because it was a kind of foothold for British, British, commercial, British commercial anti-slavery on the West African coast. Um, and then after 1815, you know, from 1808 until the, abolition, until the 1860s, you know, as many as 80,000 enslaved people were repatriated in Sierra Leone uh, as what were initially called, um, initially called, um, sorry, people who were, who were uh, initially known as, as captured Negroes uh, mm-hmm. until the 1820s and then subsequently as liberated Africans. And the liberated African community occupied this very, oh, excuse me, there we go. Uh, sorry about that. Let me start that over. Um, liberated yeah, Africans. Yeah, the liberated Africans. So, so the you know the liberated African community in, in Sierra Leone were exactly this kind of complicated in, in this in exactly the kind of complicated situation uh, that you described uh, in in that they were both you know the victims of British colonialism in a sense because the liberated Africans were. Uh, you know, a, a very easily exploited labor force in British Sierra Leone, especially in the early days of the colony, which is something that I've I've written about in my own in my own work on mm-hmm. Sierra Leone up until the 1820s. Uh, but then after, you know, by the 1830s and especially by the 1840s and 1850s, um, the liberated Africans had become a kind of privileged group within the colony. Um, yeah. So the Western style university. Uh, in in, for in West Bay Africa. College, yeah, for Bay College was founded in the in the I think the late eighteen twenties or eighteen thirties, mm-hmm. um, and the graduates of Fort Bay College and the merchant community of liberated Africans in Sierra Leone, the kind of the people who were one of the points of origin for the the Creole of Sierra Leone in the present, um, were both you know they were caught between the fact that within the kind of within a British Empire that was be, had always been racist but was becoming more and more programmatically and scientifically racist in the 19th century. Eugenics and social Darwinism and all that. Exactly. So, so they were both, you know, the beneficiaries of British colonialism, but also, you know, there were like a, what's the phrase like not white, not quite. Right. So, so no matter how, Mm. how sophisticated, no matter how much a, a, a liberated African scholar or merchant or politician, uh, accepted, absorbed, and emulated the kind of European cultures. Exactly. Of like, of of British, of the British bourgeoisie, they could never actually attain that kind of equality with the British. You know what I mean? So, so, so yeah. And then, you know, that, and, and one of the things that I find kind of tragic, especially tragic about the story of, of, of liberated Africans and then of the Creole is how quickly the British empire turned on a dime in the 1880s and 1890s, right? There are deep conceptual and complex flaws with the idea in British West Africa of creating a kind of black British sort of um, sub-imperial class. Uh, you know, that did a lot of damage to a lot of people. Um, 
But I think the most tragic part is, is that by the 1880s and 1890s, Britain completely reversed its position, abandoned the idea that its surrogates and its proxies in West Africa would be people of African origin, educated in British universities and well-versed in the kind of language of the British um, ruling class. And instead, Britain would choose as its surrogates, um, you know, traditional kings and chieftaincies, and those would act as its surrogates. Exactly. So you know, things completely like the, you know, the, the throughout the 19th century in the kind of era of kind of high liberal laissez-faire imperialism, the, the Creole, the Creole of Sierra Leone were told again and again that they were being groomed effectively to rule Sierra Leone when Britain gave it up as a colony. But by the 18, 1880s, 1890s, people like, you know, uh, like Frederick Lugard are arguing, in fact, that that's not the way to, to, to govern the empire at all. The way to govern the empire at all is to find traditional authority, whatever that means, identify traditional authorities as the rule, as rulers and marginalize everybody else. So, you know, I, I, I have a hard time, like the, the liberated Africans played a very important role in certain strands of West African political, cultural, and economic history, um, especially in the history of Nigeria. Exactly. Um, but, you know, they, they were, by the end of the 19th century, carried along by a change of policy in the British colonial office and the British foreign office, and then all of a sudden were, you know, a kind of dis- despised minority within the, 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 the new protectorate of Sierra Leone. So it's, I, ag- it's, I agree completely. I think the last point is very important because it was sort of like a communication mismatch. You had the people in London who had a view of the new sort of, you know, European African, if I may use that yeah. phrase, having a very huge stake in the new colonial yeah. project. And you had the guys on the ground, like Frederick Lugard, who said, well, these guys want more than we can actually do. <laughs> and if yeah, you give exactly. them that sort of, of power, then they take over British power. So we need like, you know, sultans, for example, we need emirs, we need like um, obas and kings who we can actually sort of, you know, use as puppet masters and just collect the taxation and use the, the structures that are already on ground to govern this entire region. Because it was a difficult area to govern from a British perspective. Right. Um, and and you, you can see that difference even in the, the sort of and the, the ways that the, the kind of. I mean, I'm no, I'm no expert on the later part of the 19th century, but but just the way that. You know, in the 1850s, Samuel Crowther meets with Queen Victoria and Palmerston to argue that the Oba of Lagos should be removed, right? Yes. And it, you know, and then, but the idea that, that uh, you know, but by the end of the 19th century, and, you know, Britain was probably planning on overthrowing, you, you know, it, you know, establishing a formal foothold in the big palm oil regions oh, of, of oh, surrounding the Delta. You know, so, so it's not to say that Crowther was the cause of the, you know, the beginning of what would eventually become the Nigeria protectorate. Um, but, you know, the, the idea that Britain would even consult with Crowther, like, with, with, with Crowther would not have happened in 1910, you know, exactly. uh, you know, or it was just it, like the, the, the concepts that the, like the, the, the concepts that were invented by Slaveholders, not just British slaveholders, but slaveholders across the Americas to justify slavery mm-hmm. were very different, right? You know, I, I mean, I think one of the, like, not to excuse enslavement anywhere, right? Whether in West Africa or in the Americas, but 
structures of, of slave labor and enslavement in West Africa were very heterogeneous, right? There wasn't a single model of slavery in West Africa, especially before European contact or, or in the early days of European contact, right? There was a whole spectrum of different kinds of coerced labor that looked like slavery or were slavery, but there wasn't one thing. Whereas in the Americas, there was one thing, right? Chattel slavery. Um, and, you know, an, an enslaved person in one West African polity wouldn't necessarily be an enslaved person in another. But if you were enslaved in Brazil, you could be sold to Virginia and vice versa. It was a single, you know, there were multiple empires, but there was one legal concept that defined what an enslaved person's status was. Um, and, sla- and, and slaveholders in the Americas invented justifications for the use of enslaved labor that survived the abolition of slavery. Right. The idea that that, you know, there are that 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 geographic origin and skin color and cultural background predisposes someone to a particular kind of labor, uh, you, you know, or that is, 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 is a concept that that's easily survived the abolition of slavery um, and that ironically became one of the instruments of the military arm of anti-slavery in the British Empire. Right. The, the West Africa squadron that plied first, you know, the coast of West Africa and later the Indian Ocean were not, you know, released probably, uh, you know, at, at the highest count, a few hundred thousand enslaved people from the slave trade, which is not nothing. Right. It's better. You know, it's, it's, it's not to you know, I think it's not at all. The, the problem is, is that people want to see it as all or nothing. Right. It's either that the West Africa squadron were like heroic um like the, a, a, a heroic military force that ended the slave trade or that they did nothing at all. And the answer is obviously in between. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that the West Africa squadron didn't have a role in shaping British imperial power in West Africa is, is ludicrous. They obviously did. And the people yeah. that Britain released from slave ships, it, it expected to fill the same kind of role in the economic, in the kind of political economy of British West Africa, as enslaved people f- filled in the Americas, right? So a, a liberated African wasn't enslaved and had way more rights and mobility than an enslaved person would in the Americas. I'm not trying to like I'm not trying to make an equivalence between the two, but a liberated African was still expected to farm, right, and to to grow cash crops for an international market which is exactly what enslaved people in the Americas were doing in a different legal system. So those concepts, I think, were invented by, invented by slaveholders and fostered and, and baked into the structure of European empires in the Americas. And they proved very, very useful for maintaining European hegemony after the end of slavery everywhere. Yes. I think another reason is because around this time, well, the British Empire especially had a strong foothold in Asia. And they, yes. they sort of understood, you know, for example, Lugard in Majiparam wrote in a fantastic biography of him that when he got to Hong Kong, he could see how an educated um, indigenous elite were detrimental to the whole British project because they did not give him any sort of headway. So when he was brought back um, to sort of unite Nigeria in 1914 because of um, German and French threats around the Cameroon and, and Togolese land. He knew exactly what he had to do because he just felt like he couldn't work with this new um, class of educated Africans because they were just not on board with anything he had. Um, but then this takes us to the next point, and you mentioned it a bit um, in terms of racism and the legacy 
of the slave trade in the Americas. Um, but then before we get to that, let's talk a bit about the Royal African Company. So sure. that it was such a very important company in the entire trade. If I could use another commodity of today, it would be they were the Royal Dutch Shell of the slave trade. Um, yeah. Why do you think it was a British company? Why do you think they were so important? And how did they get this kind of control over the entire trade? Um, their, their logos, the Elephant and Castle, was present all across the world, um, almost yeah. like um, the VOC of the, the Dutch East India Company. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the Royal, so the Royal African Company was only, I mean, I think it's, it's heyday was really, it's heyday was really in the 17th century. Um, and then subsequently, you know, it, it lost its monopoly. Uh, and then the, the kind of British slave trade fragmented into many different um, kind of smaller scale entrepreneurial slave trading companies. So I think the so the, the the monopoly era of the Royal African Company happened in you know shortly after the restoration um, of the Stuarts in Britain. It was connected oh, to an era when um, you know it was it was part of an era when when uh, chartered companies were one of the primary modes of of British colonial power, right? To have to have a chartered company, the, as you mentioned before, the Virginia Company, the Massachusetts Bay Company. Um, you know the Sierra Leone Company in a very different context. Um, so, so the Royal African Company was symbolic, I think, of Britain's decision to. Uh, I guess it would have still been England, right, at this time, of England's mm-hmm. decision rather to stop its kind of piratical, um, piratical intervention into the slave trade and begin a new kind of intervention based on systematic imperial investment in the slave trade. So I think in that sense, it was a very significant, you know, it made us, it was a sea change in, in English policy because it, it ended the kind of, was kind of Walter Raleigh, Francis Drake era of the pirates of the Caribbean kind of mm-hmm. era of trade and, and began a formal British relationship or English relationship rather uh, to the slave trade and, you know, bid for the Spanish Asiento contract. Um, and it, it also, you know, the, 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 you know, initially the, the, the Royal African company was not only a slave trading company, it, it bought a significant quantity of gold, right? So one of the reasons why one of the highest denomination British coins at the time was the Guinea was because it came from most of the gold that was brought to the Royal Mint came from the Royal African company. Um, and so the, the kind of British coins, British gold coins in that era were stamped with the, with the elephant and castle to signify that the gold came from the Royal African company. And so you can also kind of see, uh, you can also kind of track in the history of the company, the way that the gold trade, which was a much older trade between Europe and, 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 and Africa and, and, and West Africa, uh-huh. right? you know, it was the, the basis of. Europe, a lot of European and African trade and diplomacy before the era of the rise of the transatlantic slave, of the transatlantic slave trade uh, slowly fell away in favor of the trade in enslaved people. So the Royal African Company traded was probably the most significant individual British slave trading concern. But compared to the sum total of the millions of people that British ships brought across the Atlantic um, to, to, to enslavement in the Americas, you know, it wasn't it was a relatively small piece of that pie, but it was the biggest individual piece. Um, and I think the end of the monopoly power of the Royal African Company, you know, at the end of the 17th century, uh, says something about 
the, you know, has a complicated history, right? Because it both says that it shows the beginning of the free trade era in British imperial political economy to say, you know, we no longer participate in, we, you know, we as a monarchy no longer endorse uh, official monopolies, but prefer a kind of entrepreneurial com- competition. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also signals, I think, in part, the beginning of the falling of the slave trade into disrepute in Britain, right? So the the idea that, you know, the slave trade becomes, is the irony actually of the in the 18th century, at least in the British case, is that in the Caribbean, which is the real seat of British slave power, right? Like the, the, the colonies that become the United States of America have, virtually all of them have enslaved people. Some of them have plantations, but until the rise of cotton in the 1780s and 1790s, you know, Jefferson, unrepentant slave, or perhaps not unrepentant slaveholder, but guilty slaveholder, but certainly like not guilty enough to ever, you know, manumit even the people who, who he claimed to own, right? Uh-huh. Like Jefferson didn't think that his, the country that he helped to found would be a slave, would be a slave state, right? Uh-huh. He imagined that enslaved people would, I mean, he didn't know what to do with enslaved people, but he thought this is not the future of the United States, but it ended up being the future of the United States. Yeah. Um, and so I think in the in the British case, the irony is that in the Caribbean, as the 18th century wore on, fewer and fewer slaveholders owned more and more stuff. Uh, so, you know, the tendency in terms of the production of cash crops by slave by, by enslaved people, the tendency was to consolidation, whereas in the slave trade, it was to fracturing. And I think that that says something about the way that plantation slavery remained was was less easy to criticize within Britain than the slave trade was. Um, and so, you know, I think that shows in part why it was, you know, it still took a long time to abolish the transatlantic slave trade, but it was a lot politically a lot less fractious. And in terms of patriotic celebration, I mean, 1807 was, as I said earlier, you know, was, celebrated by everyone in Britain or virtually everyone, even a lot of slaveholders in Britain recognized that, you know, there was something to be gained from abolishing the slave trade because they were growing more and more confident that they could still, that the, that their enslaved labor force would grow naturally. Mm. Right. Um, So, and also they, you know, they wanted to be, they would rather continue to hold their hold their lands than have them fall to the French. Whereas in 1833, you know, I think, the, the Slavery Abolition Act was a much more complicated, much more flawed, much more self-contradictory kind of law that ended slavery in the Caribbean, but didn't look anything like the liberation that enslaved people in the Caribbean were expecting, right? Like one of the great themes, I think, in, in, in the history of the British Caribbean is the betrayal of the leadership among the enslaved community, the people who had actually organized to whenever they heard rumors of anti-slavery in Britain had organized to try to advance that cause and, and kind of imagined that, you know, if they like rebels in Barbados in 1816 in British Guyana in 1823 and Jamaica in 1831, the leadership all, I think quite earnestly believed that they had already received emancipation from the, the Imperial parliament and that it was just colonial slaveholders who were lying to them and keeping them in bondage because it was inconceivable that they could hear anti-slavery rumors and not think that what anti-slavery meant was the end of slavery. But of course, in the British context, anti-slavery 
didn't mean the end of slavery for a very long time. And even when it of slavery, it certainly didn't mean the end of British, like it, it was, you know, as I've tried to, it was the replacement of the like one kind of white supremacy with another, like a bad white supremacy represented by slaveholders with a, a kind of more benign version of white supremacy run by missionaries and, and abolitionists. And so, you know, it's, it's a... And that, that brings us quite nicely to the next point that they all knew what was going on, really. Like um, Jefferson, for example, when with the Barbary Wars, when white Americans were being captured around the Mediterranean and, you know, enslaved, he sent, um, was the first president to, to declare war without the approval of Congress to, to sort of like go and sort that out and bring back these white people who were enslaved. And also the Africans as well, the kings who had sons studying in Europe. So they knew about what was going on in the slave, um, with the slave trade and they kept on doing it anyway because it made them quite wealthy. And a lot of them spoke um, European languages, you know, in the Benin courts, for example, they were quite fluent in Portuguese. So they knew exactly what the trade was on both sides and they continued it because of how important it was to enrich in their pockets. Um, but then on one side, the Europeans, the, 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 the surplus value from the slave trade gave rise to the Industrial Revolution, whereas on the African side, we're not quite sure exactly what happened with the money they made from the slave trade. Um, yeah. But this leads us to the next thing, the legacy of the slave trade in the Americas. Um, I mean, the legacy of that today in present-day United States would be the Black Lives Matter movement. But let's say the first 50 years after that, how did that change when the slave trade ended um, in, with the, in America and also across the Americas? In my opinion, yeah. everywhere, the USA... Colombia, Brazil, they're all the Americas, and all of them are African-Americans. So how did that, what was the legacy for the African-Americans within the Americas? So, I mean, I think for, I think it's interesting to think about what, what moments were celebrated by Black Americans after 1807, right? And what, you know, what was, and I think that the end of the slave trade was not particularly, like, didn't, did not resonate as much as, for example, the Haitian Revolution, right? So in, mm-hmm. in, in Walker's appeal to the colored uh, people of the world, in, which I think is in 1827, this kind of an incredible, um, incredibly interesting book um, that was written. So Walker was, was free. He lived in Massachusetts. He wrote this combination of sort of abolitionist, abolitionist tract slash kind of uh, almost sort of messianic Protestant religious document. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sailors used to, black sailors used to smuggle copies of it into Charleston, South Carolina, like sewed into the linings of their jackets, right? So there's this kind of like samizdat going around. And for Walker, the abolition of the slave trade is kind of immaterial in comparison with the Haitian Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think enslaved people, in the, in, in the United States, which is the context, you know, I'm not a, an historian specifically of the U.S., but that's definitely the context that I know best. For enslaved people in the United States, the, the idea of a free post-slavery state ruled by its Black majority was much, much more inspirational than the end to, uh, uh, to than the, than, than the end of the slave trade. So the end of the slave trade in terms of how it affected 
imperial economies. Um, I mean, by the turn of the 18th century, most, you know, I, I, and I think actually, I don't know the answer to this, but some economic historians have tried to answer this question um, more uh, with, with more clarity than, than I can muster, but something happened in the Caribbean where by the turn of the 18th, by the turn of the 19th century, even in the most kind of uh, dangerous and destructive workplaces in the, in, in Britain's enslaved colonies, um, the population of enslaved people began to grow naturally, right? So like if, if, if you're looking at like in, for example, like the population of Jamaica enslaved population of Jamaica grew throughout the 18th century, but it grew throughout the 18th century because so many slave ships were calling in Jamaican ports. Um, the work of making sugar was extreme, like probably the most dangerous industrial form or, or proto-industrial form of labor in the British empire uh, up there with like, like the colliery, the, 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 you know, the coal miners of, of, of Britain and Wales in the 18th century, right? It was probably as dangerous and a lot of people died. Um, and so the population, but by the end of the 18th century, despite the decline of the in raw numbers of enslaved people arriving in the Caribbean, the population started to rise. And once the population started to rise uh, through, you know, through, through, you know, natural reproduction, uh-huh. um, slaveholders were able to kind of worry a lot less about, about the transatlantic slave trade. Um, and moreover, after the after the Haitian Revolution, a lot of slaveholders, especially in the British colonies and in uh, the remaining American slave states, uh, began to look at the transatlantic slave trade as being a kind of source of revolutionary contagion. So you can see in the in the 1790s, places that like South Carolina, uh, like Georgia clamp down on and, and make, make appeals to the British government to end the slave trade because their slaveholders there are terrified that um, enslaved people from Saint-Domingue, from, from Haiti, uh, well, from Saint-Domingue from 1791 and then from Haiti after 1804 will somehow like sneak in among other enslaved people and spread rebellion. Mm-hmm. And so like the, the Haitian revolution really changes everything um about the the way both the way that that enslaved people see the possibilities of freedom and also the way that slaveholders see the advantage relative advantages and disadvantages of participating in the slave trade um and so you know the like they're in in the americas right the 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 slave trade i would say is already on a downswing to the northern parts of the Caribbean, at least, uh, at least in the British world, by the end of the 18th century, and then after 1807, then you know the rise of the United States as probably like the most dynamic and successful, economically successful slave state in the history of the world, mm-hmm. um, a, a place where the internal slave trade is the real slave trade, right? Like all of the, and it inflects so much of American English too, like being sold down the river, you know, a, 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 like the American vernacular is so full of allusions to the centrality of slavery to the rise of the United States. Um, and so, you know, I think that, that, that the, the United States, like the world's premier slave power of the 19th century, that nonetheless doesn't participate in the transatlantic slave trade at all, um, except through smuggling sometimes, mm-hmm. um, really changes the complexion. So I, I think that, that it's, it's important to not without without downplaying the importance of the abolition of the slave trade it's important to not 
overprivilege the abolition of the slave trade because of the way that abolitionists themselves celebrated it, right? It, it was not emancipation. Um, and when emancipation came, it didn't, it, like emancipation throughout the Americas for enslaved people was inflected by plantation slavery in ways that have proved incredibly difficult in the present to root out. And I think that that's one of the, you know, that's, that's one of the resonances of the history of slavery with the Black Lives Matter movement, right? The, the idea that these, these are the debates about what emancipation should look like are unresolved. Exactly. Um, there are no specific goals. Exactly. And, and the, the, like the emancipation that, that you know, the, the emancipation that, that, you know, enslaved black Americans hoped for wasn't the emancipation that they got really. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes you imagine like what, what would the United States have looked like if like Lincoln had dissolved all of the slave States and reconstituted mm. them entirely, or if Sherman had not stopped in Atlanta, but had like driven the Confederacy to the sea. Right. Like mm-hmm. what would the United States look like without Jim Crow, without Jim Crow or with with a genuine, you know, with the with the, 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 the all of the victories of Reconstruction preserved. Exactly. Um, so, you know, this is like this is not I, I think there's a tendency in Britain, at least to treat this as like all finished. Right. Oh. And then, you know, to, to kind of say, well, it was 1833 and then, you know, that was it. Uh, and then, you know, I think the, 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 the Windrush scandal, I think, reactivated the, I mean, I think Black Britons Britain. were, were exactly. very much aware of these legacies for a long time. But I think that it was really the Windrush scandal that, that brought it back into the, the center of the British kind of media firestorm and, and reactivated some of these issues in British politics. But they've exactly. always been. Liberation is an ongoing struggle. Um, but then to just you know, touch on the point you made, it's also important to know that a lot of people who were enslaved, who were brought on slave ships, were prisoners of war, which is yeah. why there were a lot of rebellions, constant rebellions all the time. And that a lot of the white um, owners of slaves didn't know exactly how to, to, to quell these rebellions all the time. And within Jamaica, they were maroons, the people who, who left and ran away from slave plantations and established their own free enclaves where they lived comfortably for, for many decades. And also, people who were born into slavery were more likely to accept than people who came on slave ships. Yeah, what sorry, exactly? can, I just, can I just add yeah. something to that? Yeah. Um, just, just to kind of... I, I would actually add a little bit of nuance to that story uh, in terms of the, the pacing of rebellions by enslaved people. Um, because I think certainly you have a point, right, in the in the early part of the 18th century up until, you know, Taki's rebellion in, in Jamaica, mm-hmm. um, the leaders of slave rebellions tended to be um, enslaved people who were themselves like war leaders when they were captured, right? Exactly. So, so uh, and then preserved. So you can even see in that, like, it's very hard to understand or to glean from sources that are overwhelmingly produced by slaveholders what the kind of vision of freedom is of rebel of rebels in the Caribbean in the, in the 18th century. Like what did Tacky, like Vincent Brown in his new book, Tacky's revolt does a good job of trying to reconstruct it, but we don't really know. Exactly. Like, it seems like Tacky wanted to kind of reconstitute a, a, like an Akan kingdom or chieftaincy in Jamaica, uh, but we don't know. And we only get this through slaveholder sources, but the leaders of, of the rebellions of the 19th century, Bussa's Rebellion in, in Barbados, and then the Demerara Rebellion, and then the, the Baptist War were 
for the most part, people who were born in the colonies and occupied positions of power within the plantation hierarchy. So like Sam Samuel Sharp, one of the great heroes of Jamaican history, was illiterate, was, was enslaved, but was literate um, and was a ranger. So he didn't actually work in the fields, but instead he occupied this kind of position of this kind of liminal position of power, although he was still enslaved, where he, his, his role as an enslaved worker was to kind of ride from one plantation to the next, delivering messages and information and arranging for goods, goods and, and people to move from place to place, which gave him unrivaled access in terms of building a coalition of people for a rebellion. Um, and also, you know, says something about the way, you know, I think there's a, a, you know, this is like kind of an unfashionable streak in, in history. But I remember as an undergraduate reading these kind of old books from the 70s about what constitutes a revolution and what are the kind of, you know, exactly. what, yeah, like what, what kind of political situation is most likely to produce revolt. And it seems like there's two different kinds. One is which, one is, you know, at least in the Caribbean, one is of people with a very distinct vision of what their freedom ought to look like, who have just arrived in the Caribbean and intend to seize that freedom as quickly as possible. And another, which is maybe more deliberate, uh, and, and the kind of vision of freedom and of emancipation that Samuel Sharp proposed looked a lot more like, you know, something based on, you know, self, uh, I, I, I mean, who knows exactly what, what Samuel Sharp's <laughs> program was, but of what, yeah. of, of what we can get from missionary sources, I mean, he and his co-conspirators had a vision even of a minimum wage, right, for, for uh, workers in the Caribbean that was based on how much slaveholders paid to parish vestries for a day's labor of an enslaved person. So clearly, like, Tacky, when he led his rebellion in 1760, was deeply, well, was deeply steeped in the traditions of kingship and military aristocracy. Well, and Samuel was Sharp was much more steeped in the traditions of labor organization, for lack of a better term, right? Like they, the one, one looks like a kind of king's rebellion and the other one looks like a kind of labor rebellion. So I think there, it's important to not diminish those, that, that second. In anyway. nuance. Right, yeah. I agree. Uh, thanks for that. Um, the, the next point is the legacy of the trade on the African continent. Um, I mean, there, a lot of the trade occurred you know, on the West African coast, which stretches from present-day Angola all the way up to Nigeria and some would even say Morocco. Um, but how important is, is the trade scene in today's terms? Because personally for me, Growing up, I wasn't really taught about, I wasn't taught about trade at all. It wasn't part of my entire, you know, education in any sort of way. Um, how does that, what is the legacy for the trade um, on the African continent, in your view? I mean, I think part of the legacy, right, is, is in terms of education and, and the way that, you know, the, the many, like, post-colonial African states that have some kind of connection to the slave trade. Like, I, I can't really speak to that. Uh, I think that each, just as, you know, I think the history of transatlantic slavery is a global story and it's also a national story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, and every nation, like my, you know, my own, like Canada has its own complicated, tortured relationship to its own involvement. Like Canada is not a node of the transatlantic slave trade, but Canada is connected to transatlantic slavery mm-hmm. in ways that not all Canadians are comfortable acknowledging. So I'm sure that those struggles are happening um, in terms of the kind of cultural memory of slavery across 
the, the, as I say, the many post-colonial African states that are connected in some way to that history. Um, in terms of the legacies economically, I mean, I think we can add a lot of details and, you know, quibble with some of the empirical data in Walter Rodney's work on how Europe underdeveloped Africa. But I think that the, you know, or, or you know, Du Bois's work on, 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 on Africa and the world written in the mm-hmm. 60s when he, was, when he was living in Ghana. Um, you know, but I think the overall sketch is correct, right? That there was a sense in which slavery allowed Europe, they gave your, as you say, like produced much of the surplus value that if it didn't like directly cause industrialization, certainly accelerated it. Um, and industrialization in turn took what had been like a, maybe a marginal political, economic and military advantage enjoyed by Europe in say 1500 and turned it into enorm- an enormous advantage, an enormous inequality by say 1900. Yeah. Um, and so like ending slavery did not end those inequalities. And the, after slavery, you know, extractive colonialism wasn't the same thing as, as slavery. Um, but in a way it, it, it's legacies. Like we, we, it's, it's, you know, I think, Economic historians try to answer this question by imagining like, what the productivity of various, you know, African industries would have been absent the number of people who were removed from those industries by the mm-hmm. trade. Mm-hmm. Like what would have happened to the iron industry in West Africa or the textile industry in West Africa? Uh, and it's hard to say. Um, <laughs> but we can say like there wasn't mass enslavement of people on the Indian subcontinent by Britain. But we can see that the rise of British global capitalism destroyed the Indian textile industry and took what had been a, a, a very sophisticated, globally connected manufacturing industry and pushed it back into from, from being a kind of self-contained industry that produced and also manufactured cotton into just a producer of cotton. And so I think we can, from those examples, imagine the kinds of things like what would have happened if iron, if like. African states continue to refine and, and mine their own iron rather than getting cheap imports of finished iron goods from Birmingham, right? Or it's, it's hard to say, but I think overall the impact of, of, of like, I think it's kind of unquestionable that the impact of transatlantic slavery harmed uh, and, and uh, harmed West African colonies, co- colonial um, sort of harmed the, the, the overall economic, political, and, and, and kind of um, international standing of, 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 of African states, right? But the precise ways in which that happened are so complex that it's, it's hard to track. But I think it's clear that like, slavery contributed to the underdevelopment of much of Africa and contributed to col- the shape of colonialism. Uh, and, you know, con- contributed in turn to the shape of post-colonial states as well. Um, but I think that the, the, the influence is so deep and so kind of buried in the substrate of the current moment in global political economy that it's hard to fix on an exact kind of, like, it, it's hard to find a causation, but I think it's unquestionable that there is this huge influence. I, I agree. From from your answer, I, I can deduce what you're saying is like Africa has been locked into this endless commodity cycle since the slave trade. So today it's cocoa, tomorrow it's um, yeah. oil, uh, copper. You know that's a legacy of the trade in the sense that it's locked yeah. into feeding the industrial areas in Europe and across the world, as opposed to developing its own and yes. trading on an equal footing. And, um, and, and, and 
and, and, and overlaid moreover with the legacies of racism, right? Because exactly. I'm from a country that is, that has like a white settler majority, Canada, um, that is also a state whose primary industry is extraction, right? Like just like democratic Republic of Congo produces most of the world's like, yeah, exactly. Coltan uh, and all these other rare earth metals and diamonds and all kinds of other extremely valuable commodities in global trade, you know, Canada, without oil and lumber and fish, you know, Canada's economy is based on the extraction of natural resources, but Canada's in the G7 and the DRC has one of the lowest human is among the lowest countries on the human development index. And so it's not just like they talk, sometimes economists talk about the resource curse, but you can't understand the resource curse. If you don't understand that the resource curse is overlaid with the ways that slavery and racism shape the global order so that countries like Australia or Canada that are basically mining concerns. Exactly. Extractive industry, extractive countries. So so it's not just extraction. There's something else. Um, And that something else is absolutely a function of the, of, of slavery. Exactly. It's the overarching political structure that the world is governed by, which is, you know, many cases is is governed on race. And that is why, many of these countries are where they are to do economically and politically. Um, wow. Thank you. Thank you oh, so much. Pleasure. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. I, I've been, uh, it's, yeah, it's been uh, a long summer of, of kind of uh, pandemic survival. So it's, <laughs> exactly. it's, it's really nice to be able to, 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 to talk about this stuff with you instead of just kind of wondering when things are going to reopen. <laughs> yeah. uh, are you, are you working on anything new? Uh, yeah, so I have a book um, coming out at the end of November uh, called Slave Empire um, that is a kind of synthesis of uh, the history of slavery and its role in the construction of the British Empire uh, and then it's, it's, uh, and then of, of, of British anti-slavery. So I try to connect. A lot of the themes in my work have to do with the ways that anti-slavery is not this polar opposite of slavery, or at least white anti-slavery is not this polar opposite of slavery, but is connected to it in ways that are uh, uncomfortable, I think, for the way that Britain remembers its, its imperial heritage. So this book is my attempt to try to explain those arguments for not just to an academic audience, but to a wider kind of public audience. Now we listen to BBC Witness history recording between Sean Coughlin and the historian Hannah Durkin talking about the last surviving person to be captured in Africa and brought to the United States on a slave ship. She died in 1940, still within living memory. Our survivor, Matilda McCrea, was still alive in living memory. Matilda had lived in Selma, Alabama until January 1940, making her the last living link with slaves brought from Africa to the United States. Matilda was captured under slave raids on her town and then marched to the West African coast with her mother Gracie and her two brothers and three sisters. Her father was probably killed in that slave raid. Matilda was then held in a slave pen for about two weeks before being sold to a slave trader called Captain William Foster. That's Hannah Durkin, an expert on the history of slavery from Newcastle University, who found that Matilda had arrived in Alabama in 1860 as a two-year-old child on one of the last slave ships from Africa. 
Making this link even closer, she tracked down Matilda's grandson, Johnny Creer, living in Selma, who knew nothing about his grandmother's place in history. I really had no idea of how or when Matilda had come to this country. When I got the information from Hannah, it was eye-opening. When the slave ship reached the United States, Matilda and her mother and sister were bought by a plantation owner called Memorable Cray. They had left behind her brothers, and two sisters were sold to another slave owner, and never seen again. So now we speak with Dr. Damilola Adebayo. Slave trade now. Um, how exactly did it begin? How exactly was it sustained? And how exactly did it fall? Well, it's... It's an interesting question in the sense that uh, mm, slavery is as old as man, right? So if you want to talk about slavery, you could as well talk about, you can as well go back to the earliest times. It's been an important source of labor for human endeavors. I mean, from the ancient Egyptian civilizations, the Greek and the Roman empires were all built on the back of slave labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Talk about the Arab 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 slavery, which uh, went which was traded along the Trans-Saharan uh, posts. I mean, if you check, uh, if you the closest before the Suez Canal uh, was was dug, was dug, uh, it would to get Africa was like the closest along the the, the Atlantic Ocean route. So to get to India, for instance. Uh, you'd have to come through uh, North Africa, down to West Africa, down to South Africa, towards uh, uh, Cape in South, before mm-hmm. Pacific, and then before moving off. Before joining the Indian Ocean. Indian Ocean before. So that was, it was economically prohibitive to, to recruit human labor from, uh, I'm using the main words really uh, by saying you recruit uh, human labor to recruit human labor from this part of the world and mm-hmm. so this leaves us with Africa I mean and also beyond the geographical location which made the western part of Africa to be closed I mean you know you can also say okay so why did the slaves also come from sub-Saharan Africa after all North Africa is close, closer to to Europe by the Mediterranean Exactly right. So, but so this leads to the intellectual justifications for slavery as well. It was could be indirectly, even though it was fought by wars were fought by Africans over African territories, but indirectly they were sponsored by uh, European slave traders. If you want to look at it from that perspective, and you know when demand is also more than supply, slave slavery slaves became really super, super profitable commodities. So if you want to farm, uh, to, to produce crops for sale, will take you time to, I mean, before it will take, for annual crops, it will take a year for, for perennial crops, it will probably take four or five years before some crops begin to produce foods for sale. But slavery, the incentive was immediate. Like you could, you could capture someone, take them to the coast and sell them and you get a lot of money. And the value that were offered was small from the European end, but was a lot of money or was a lot in terms of the luxury good that they were exchanged for. 
I mean, imagine being exchanged for an umbrella or being exchanged for, for a gun, which was considered a highly priced material. It's like exchanging a slave for a Ferrari today. I mean, if you were to exchange two people for Ferrari, I mean, let's think about it, the human greed. If you could kidnap two people, if I'm not talking about you as you, but I'm talking about if, if you could kidnap uh, two people and sell sell them to to uh, say uh, Jaguar Jaguar uh, Land Rover company for for the, the latest uh, Range Rover autobiography, people would do it. So it's the same thing. So it's because they consider the value of this luxury good to be worth more than humans. Even though to these people it wasn't worth much, but to the Africans it was worth. So the incentives led to increased warfare. Exactly. People and sell for the trade. That's to be the, the, the area where the Bight of Africa is the Atlantic Ocean area coast from uh, the Niger Delta area of Nigeria today down towards uh, West Nigeria, also towards Ghana area and all of those places. But that, that tiny area, basically, mostly around the Niger Delta area, had the, the bulk of uh, slaves that went to the New World came from that area. It's exactly, exactly. Massive um, that led to serious population decline. I mean, you yeah. yeah. So what I wanted to ask now is, how exactly did the Europeans get the slaves? So firstly, there were wars, and that's where the bulk of the slaves came from, or captives who were later enslaved came from. And then secondly, you have slave raids and kidnappings. So you had lesser merchants who were involved in the trade, you know, unleashing basically thugs to go and capture people, and then they sell and make the money. And then you had, you know, um, Europeans, who the ones who ventured into the, from the coast, who raided as well on their own and caught slaves so they could cut off the middleman. So are those the three major ways that people were, were, were held captive and then sent to the Americas? Or are there other ways? Yes. That's, that's the those, are the, those are the main major ways. There were other uh, important, but uh, important in, this, in the sense that any, any uh, kidnapping of human is important, even though it's just one man. Exactly. But uh, in terms of numbers, they were insignificant. They were, I mean, an example is people would be banished from, from the towns for offenses against local customs and tradition. Or the, uh, their, their punishment before the slave trade became profitable would have been banishment. But now the punishment also became uh, the fact that they were being sold for slaves, as slaves, you know. So that's also another another point to note to to add to that uh, fact. People who were tricked as well, tricked by people they know, their friends, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. Joseph in the Bible. <laughs> well, I there's, you know, that. there's that there's that Nigeria saying now, escort me, escort me, as soon slave trade starts. Well, so. I, I wouldn't know <laughs> that there were cases where where people were sold by their friends, but it's knowing considering the nature of humans, it it would not have been impossible. But the dominant the dominant uh uh outlets through which Africans were captured and then sold as slaves to Europeans on the coast were uh, through raiding wars and uh, kidnapping. Exactly. And then, you know, the legacy of the slave trade really was, you know, before the slave trade, the majority of the world was on equal footing in many criteria, basically. Um, and also there was that respect for, 
for racial factors, really. But then the slave trade, because of how people who had the skin color, black skin color, were de- there's a lot of degradation of that skin color. You know, it led to the racism. From the 1750s onward, uh, there was already the risk towards the, the ending of slave trade. So slave trade uh, became an issue of concern in Europe after the Industrial Revolution. So Industrial Revolution led to the, the invention of machines that basically replaced hundreds of people. So Millions of people. Now, which I'm just trying to be as conservative as possible. Okay. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but it's because, so people that were being exported to Europe and the New World, they were becoming redundant in a way. And uh, so there was the uh, capitalist point of view where it no longer made economic sense to, to uh, export people alone. And I remember that industrial revolution also led to uh, the rise of massive industries, such they, re- they required a lot of raw materials. And they also required markets to sell them. Mm-hmm. So it was no longer it no longer made sense for for people in in uh, Europe. It, it, it then began to make sense rather for people for there to be people in other parts of of uh, the world who could buy who could produce their raw materials and who could also buy their stuff. And there was also the rise of abolitionist movements from the 1780s, mm-hmm. humanitarians and philanthropic consents. Uh, but the first victory against slave trade, I could actually go as far back to 1773, is often dated to 1772, uh, when uh, George uh, Justice Mansfield, I think, of the British court, described, declared slavery as unconstitutional under British law. So it was this uh, Mansfield declaration, which also had its roots in some other issue. I mean, it's, the root of that declaration, of that judgment was funny. Uh, it was... Um, <laughs> an insurance, it was like an insurance claim where, where I mean, anyway, I wouldn't want to go into that because of time. <laughs> uh, George Mans, Justice Mansfield, 1772, a declaration of slavery as unconstitutional. You can read about it a lot. So it was that, it was those series of events dating back to the uh, Industrial Revolution and, and that led to the parliamentary, uh, out, that led to the parliament outlawing slave trade in 1807. But uh, uh, slavery still continued until even for several decades, and internal African slavery continued even until. Uh, in fact, it was uh, it was in 1930 that the ILO, the International Labour Organization, even uh, enacted the the first labor convention, which apparently which was supposed to outlaw slavery and all forms of uh, forced labor within Africa and every part of the world. Obviously, these laws were applied to Africa by by European colonizers, but that's also a story for, for another day. So, yeah, slavery ended and uh, legitimate commerce began. Legitimate in the sense that slavery was illegitimate, and now uh, the commerce became legitimate. So I don't think legitimate commerce is the, is the appropriate word. It's an appropriate word using from an Eurocentric uh, conceptual Eurocentric point of view, uh, but maybe not for Africans. So what happened then was because of the need for for raw materials for British and well British because industrial revolution began in Britain, but also Dutch and elsewhere. Uh, because of the need for industrial uh, raw materials, you had uh, farmland uh, springing up 
across Africa, uh, especially tropical Africa, palm oil, cocoa, etc. In the eighteen eighties, um, so uh, by the time this, uh, by the time large farmland uh, farming communities were springing up, mm. it was a situation where there was increasing competition amongst European powers in Africa. So by this time, they were already able to venture beyond the coast because they had developed uh, smaller boats and sturdier boats that could navigate the, the waterways. They had developed more medicine. They had developed uh, a, lot, a whole lot of other things that I think Daniel Edricks uh, discussed in his book, The Tools of Empire. And uh, so they were able to move into Africa. So they were already... Uh, tensions between the European powers over who had rights to certain area, who had rights to purchase agricultural produce for their own economic development back home. So it was this tension that uh, the tension then culminated over River Congo. Yes. Actually led to uh, Berlin. So Berlin was basically to resolve uh, conflict over River Congo, Berlin, 1884, 1885. And it was uh, at that point that they decided, okay, fine, we're going to partition Africa. And partitioning for Africa was mostly uh, a case where they decided, okay, fine, how are we going to decide who could get uh, the Niger area, which became Nigeria? How are we going to decide who could get the Gold Coast, the Asante Kingdom, and etc.? Uh, the Bugandan Kingdom, uh, Rwanda, Urundi, etc. How are we going to decide? And then decided using what they called a uh, sphere of influence and effective occupation. In other words, European uh, uh, before you can lay claim, before European can lay could lay claim to could lay a valid claim to a colony, they had to show that they were already active in that area and that they knew the territory and they were already in contact with the chiefs, etc. And then they had to also show that they had the capacity to possess such territories. Meanwhile, whilst this conversation was going on, Africans were oblivious to what was happening, right? So it was after African had been partitioned and all of that Berlin that they then, uh, the European powers then started coming into the, the, the colonies. They started occupying and occupation was... Uh, there were several means of occupation, really, uh, mostly through uh, treaty signing, treaties that some of these pre-colonial states did not understand, and uh, also uh, the promise of favorable terms of trade and protection from enemies. Asante Fante is an example. Uh, then uh, you also have uh, gunboats diplomacy, diplomacy, military expeditions, uh, such that by the 1890s, much of Africa was already effectively occupied by by European powers, and all they were doing was what they called pacification. And <laughs> pacification is actually the opposite of what they were doing, because pacification is to make peace. But they, they were basically quelling quelling skirmishes, crushing towns that were resisting. They, they were massacres, really. Yeah, I mean, they, but that was what it was called pacification. So they were making yeah. peace through wars. Uh, basically, uh, it's like it's like forcing a, a fussy baby to keep quiet by by uh, abuse, right? By slapping the baby and by beating the baby the more, like keep quiet, and the baby realizes that 
I have to keep quiet. You know, <laughs> after after shouting and shouting and crying and crying, you have to keep quiet. Or by even uh, tying a cloth around their mouth. And so they were basically, you know, that was, I'm using such graphic images just to show that pacification and making peace could, yeah, it was, was, was kind of, uh, was really, what's the word now? Was a cruel process. Was they were they were they were crushing rebellion across Africa, basically. And by the 1900s, all of these are settled, and then but the colonial systems emerged based on the the uh, ideologies of um, different European countries. Indeed.